Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Emilio. It, ha- it is a great honor for me to be here in Mexico City with you for this first lecture of the Thomistic Institute. Uh, I understand that um, when the invitation was made, I was told that I could lecture in English, that most of you understand English. And I am most certain certain that your English is certainly better than my Spanish. So. Uh, we'll, we'll proceed in English, and I hope that it's uh, intelligible and understandable. As Emilio said, we're going to speak this evening of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body and its foundation in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, which 20 years ago was probably a more salacious or contested argument than it is today. How many of you are aware of what the theology of the body is, of what John Paul's theology of the body is? Has anyone read anything of the theology of the body? So a little bit, yeah. So yeah, a little bit more. Good. This is good. It's okay. Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. So the theology of the body really became a sort of locus of Christian and certainly Catholic theological and philosophical thought beginning in the early 1990s, even though it had been around already for about 10 years. Uh, That's because, especially in the United States, uh, several theologians and professors began to read it and to translate it, if you will, or to teach it to the faithful in the pews. Um, But what the theology of the body began as were a series of catechetical addresses that St. John Paul II gave every Wednesday while, while he was Pope, beginning on September 5th, 1979. This still goes on today. Every Wednesday, Pope Francis gives a short address on some teaching of the church that's, that he is interested in and wants to share with the world, okay? So, beginning in September 5th, 1979, and going for at least five years, every Wednesday, for five years, he gave these addresses that when they were put together have collectively become known as the theology of the body. Now, a few things to note. These are catechetical addresses, which means they're intended to catechize. They're written for Catholics. They're not necessarily written to persuade or convince uh, the average believer. They're not not intended to convince a non-believer. So they're not philosophical in that sense. He didn't write these catechesis, the theology of the body, for non-Christians. In fact, the theology of the body begins with Scripture, with Genesis. It doesn't begin with human reason. In the theology of the body, St. John Paul II is not interested in making philosophical arguments for the things and the the truths that he's teaching. Even though he considered himself 
a, a philosopher, primarily. The American biographer of John Paul, George Weigel, once said that he thought the, the theology of the body was a sort of theological time bomb that was set to go off sometime in the 21st century. And since the early 90s, uh, in, certainly in, in the United States, we've seen the development of what, what I would call a cottage industry of workshops and conferences and institutes and books, all devoted to the theology of the body, considering the theology of the, of the body as something radical and groundbreaking. So the question you might be asking is, why am I talking about St. John Paul II for this inaugural lecture of the Thomistic Institute, which concerns St. Thomas Aquinas? Well, it's because I believe, and I think it's true, that Carol Wojtyla, the man who became John Paul II, was in fact a Thomist. And he was classically trained as a Thomist, just like every priest of his era was. He had a profound appreciation for St. Thomas's metaphysics, for his anthropology, for his moral theory. In fact, in his early years as a priest, he thought that St. Thomas's system provided the best synthesis for understanding human action, human emotion, and morality. Nevertheless, throughout his career, Carol Wojtyla was concerned especially beginning in the 60s and into the 1970s, that theology and philosophy had become too abstract, too separated from the concerns and the lives of the faithful in the pews at church, too disconnected from human experience. This is why those of you who study philosophy and know anything of Carol Wojtyla often hear that he's studied phenomenology that he was a phenomenologist. It's true that he dabbled in phenomenology, which is the philosophical school of thought that emphasizes human experience and the very process of human thought, but we should note that he did not um, accept phenomenology or phenom phenomenological thinkers uncritically. So even though he was interested in reconnecting theological and philosophical thought with human experience, or at least speaking theologically and philosophically in ways that connect with the lives of the faithful, John Paul was no relativist. He was no subjectivist. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe fundamentally that even amidst sin and violence and confusion, the world still makes sense. And that creation makes sense. And that we can learn from creation. Christians believe that God makes sense, that he's rational, and that revelation, what he has revealed in scripture and in tradition, is reasonable, even if at times it's mysterious. So this evening, I'm going to take you through just very briefly three of the basic points of the theology of the body and how John Paul articulates them. And then I'm going to take you through, very, very briefly, six points from St. Thomas that I think John Paul is really recovering, even though we might say he's packaging it differently in the theology of the body. Okay? First, the scriptural foundation, as I said a moment ago, 
for the theology of the body is really the creation story that's found in the second and third chapters of the book of Genesis. Remember, the first chapter of the book of Genesis is God creates the world in seven days. In the second chapter, he begin, the ch chapter begins by God creating Adam and placing him in the garden. We all know the story. He places the man in the garden and then sees that it's not good for the man to be alone. And after bringing all the animals to the man, God creates woman to be his partner. For John Paul, and this is a direct quote, chapter 2 of Genesis constitutes the oldest description and record of man's self-understanding. And together with chapter 3, it's the first witness of human consciousness. The stories in Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, were passed down orally long before they were ever written down. These are ancient stories. And so John Paul II sees those stories as the witness of how man thought about himself eons ago and what we thought about God. So Genesis, we might consider the Genesis narrative as a divinely inspired account of man's self-understanding, of how we came to understand ourselves. And the primal experience, the first experience of man revealed in Genesis is what John Paul refers to as original solitude. He is alone. And John Paul draws two conclusions from this. First, that created man finds himself from the first moment of his existence before God in search of who he is and what he is made for. Why is he here? He says uh, that man, from the first moment of his existence, is in search of his identity. Every person, every person who has ever lived or ever will live, is engaged for St. John Paul II in a subjective search, a personal search, in my objective identity, why I'm here. To find what or who we are by accepting and living out our identity and our vocation, which is what the identity and the vocation that God has in fact inscribed in our very being, in our very existence. The second conclusion that John Paul draws from this is that self-knowledge goes hand in hand with knowledge of the world. It has to. I cannot know myself without knowing the world, and I cannot know the world without more and more knowing myself. He says this, this is a direct quote. In Genesis, the man realizes that he is alone because he realizes that he is different from everything else in the world. He is not one of the animals. The body, this is the theology of the body. The body plays a significant role in man's realization that he is alone. For John Paul, it's the human body that reveals to the man that he is different. He is a body unlike any of the other animals. It's the structure of the body for John Paul that we have five fingers, two hands, opposable thumbs. We have, we have a brain. We have a heart. We have emotions. We can walk and move on two legs. He says that it's our body that permits us to be authors of truly human activity. 
See, for John Paul, it's not that the world overvalues the body. I think in our current culture, we might be tempted to think that the body has become too important for the world. John Paul would insist, in fact, the body doesn't reverence or understand the body enough. That it's more important than what most people in the world think it is, right? This is precisely why, because of the body, that John Paul notices that Adam's first reaction upon meeting Eve is not to notice that they are different, but to notice that they are the same. This at last is my flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. This one is like me. They are the same. They only notice the differences when they sin. Original sin is when they begin to notice their differences and have to hide their differences from each other. This is one of the central themes of the theology of the body. The body, if you remember nothing else from this one thing to remember tonight, for St. John Paul II, the body is what expresses the person. The body expresses the person. The creation of the woman now means that mankind has two complementary ways of being body, two complementary ways of being human, male and female. The human body in its male-female complementarity has what John Paul II calls a spousal attribute or a spousal meaning. This is sort of the uh, phrase that repeats itself, the spousal meaning of the body. And he never exactly defines it outright in the theology of the body. But as you read it, what you come to see is that the spousal meaning of the body is this, that our bodies direct us out of ourselves to another person, to others and ultimately to one other. The body is directed outward to the other. And that's why the conjugal union, he says, the marital union, the sexual act within marriage, carries within itself the prime awareness of, this, of the meaning of the body. That it's directed as a gift of self to somebody else. I give myself to somebody else. Now, there's a deeper reason, though, that the body and the human person is directed outward to the other in, a, in gift. And it has to do with creation. Here's a direct quote from St. John Paul II. Genesis introduces us into the mystery of creation that is from the beginning of the beginning of the world by the will of God who is omnipotence and love. Every creature, he says, every creature, not just humans, bears within itself the sign of an original and fundamental gift that every creature has received, the gift of existence, the fact that we exist. Creation then becomes a gift, John Paul says, because man appears in creation. And unlike the other creatures, because man is made in the image of God, man is able to understand that existence is fundamentally a gift, unlike any other animal. So the uniqueness of humanity is not only that we are called from nothingness into existence, 
but that we know we are and can understand that we are. And so, therefore, we can understand that the gift of existence has a directionality to it. We're called out of nothingness, into existence, into communion with other persons. And ultimately, uh, for those in marriage, to one person, and most ultimately, to communion with the trinity of persons, God himself. It all goes from nothingness to God. That's the spousal meaning of the body writ large. The body is a witness to this gift because it is also a witness to the love that God gives in bringing us from nothingness into existence. Men and women, through their bodies, are able to participate in the giving of the gift of existence to their children. Right? And so it's a unique participation in the God's own creation. The physical differences between the sexes are ordered to procreation. Yes, it's true, obviously. But for John Paul, the body's meaning and value goes beyond biological procreation to an expression of love and to an expression of communion. The spousal meaning of the body concerns not only procreation, it concerns the communion of persons in love, particularly in marriage. And so, for St. John Paul II, marriage is intended not only for biological procreation, but to propagate the gift of creation in love from one generation to the next. This drive to the other is manifest in the human body just as much as it's written in every person's existence. This drive for, this, for the other, this capacity for love and self-gift is what the spousal meaning of the body is and how it fulfills our existence. Now, at the beginning of time in that Genesis narrative, John Paul says that man and woman, Adam and Eve, would have understood this. They would have had an intuitive understanding in their relationship with God and in their relationship with each other of the meaning of their bodies and what that attribute, that spousal meaning is. They knew that they were made to be a gift to each other, that God had given them to each other. But original sin ruins all of that. Sorry. After sin, the body is no longer effective in communicating the person. Remember the three effects of original sin, the darkening of the mind, the weakening of the will, and the inflaming of the passions, the emotions, right? Sin introduces concupiscence, which is an inflamed sensual desire which is a threat to the whole structure of the person because concupiscence threatens our mastery of ourselves, that we can be masters of ourselves. We can be. It's just a lot harder now. With sin, our bodies are more easily and likely to revolt against our very person, against our very desires. We are no longer masters of our bodies, as Adam and Eve would have been, of our sensual desires. 
we're no longer intuitively or naturally completely free in that sense. We have to grow in self-mastery, which is to say grow in virtue. If we do not have the interior freedom of self-mastery, then we cannot, in fact, give ourselves as a gift to others because you cannot give what you do not possess. And if you don't possess yourselves, you can't give yourselves away to a spouse, right? And so this battle, in this battle, our very nature, men still crave women, women still crave men, but now there's all of this static and confusion of concupiscence involved, right? And so, um, concupiscence means we're always craving. It's what God said to Eve, your desire will always be for your husband. It will never be satiated, right? So this desire combined with concupiscence means precisely that the simple union of man and woman is now no longer perfectly fulfilling and is now insatiable, right? It doesn't completely satisfy. The interior struggle of our body's passions, of our impulses, even more so, can begin to alienate, alienate us from our body. And we see that more and more in the culture and in the world today, people feeling alienated from their bodies. But that's always been the case. It's just more obvious now. All right? It's always been the case that people have always struggled, for St. Thomas Aquinas, the three things of temperance, food, drink, and sex. Food, alcohol, and sex. People have always struggled with those, right? St. Thomas says everybody usually struggles with one more than the other two, and it's all different. You know, some people's food more than drink or sex more than food, you know. Everyone in concupiscence has one of the three that you deal with, all right? The body in these struggles becomes, can easily be seen, and we walk around with this, as something that I'm just dragging along. If I only I could get rid of this thing. You know, I'm just dragging it along. It gets worse as you get older. Then you have to deal with arthritis. <laughs> then you're really just dragging it around, right? And then somehow now the body, because of sin, doesn't seem to actually be part of my identity. And so it's not surprising then that the spousal meaning of the body and the directionality of the body is confused. So after original sin, given the alienation of the person from the body, St. John Paul II says the body becomes instead for us, and this is not a good thing, he's not, he's not condoning this, it becomes a sort of territory that we feel we must dominate. I must keep my body in order. Right? And the spousal meaning is kind of lost in all of that. It's no longer apparent. And so... John Paul says that after sin, men and women have a new task. He says, and this is a quote, they have to kind of reconstruct that meaning of the spousal attribute. They have to reconstruct it because the body is still there. It's still doing what it's supposed to do, but now things are confused and they're static of concupiscence. And so now you, you need to be much more intentional and like to reconstruct it. He's, and he says, this takes a lot of effort. The espousal meaning of the body is not destroyed by sin. The body still communicates. But because of sin, our communication with our body is distorted. And that's not just in the conjugal act, but in all of our communications. The ability to lie. The ability to put on a good face when you're angry or you're upset and you don't want anyone to know. Right? 
That's all original sin. You shouldn't have that ability. You shouldn't need to have that ability. The inability or the, the difficulty we have so often to communicate honestly with each other and even with those we love, all original sin. That's why we need Christ's redemption. In, it's in the marital act that the spousal meaning of the body, I'm moving on to the language of the body here, it's in the marital act that the spousal meaning of the body is on full display in this life. Precisely because the body has meaning, this drive to the other, the body, St. John Paul II, also therefore said, also therefore speaks a language of its own. And men and women use their body to communicate with one another and with the world. As I said, words, facial expressions, and so forth. But the body also communicates, sometimes in ways you don't want it to. You're upset, you're practically in tears, you think you're putting on a good face, everybody else in the room knows you're upset, <laughs> right? Sometimes the body communicates in ways you don't think it is. The body communicates the person, even sometimes against the will of the person. And the conjugal act is a bodily communication. Because of sin, as I said, communicating with the language of the body, especially in the conjugal act, is no longer that simple. Because of sin, because we're alienated from our bodies, we no longer communicate directly. And so John Paul says that couples have to reconstruct, but to do this, he says they have to work to, and the word he uses here is reread. They have to reread the body, reread the language of the body, which is to say, you have to understand that the body has an objective purpose and an objective meaning and communicate accordingly. All this goes back to the fact that Wojtyla, once again, like the great philosophical and theological Christian tradition before him, for him, the body is an objective reality that must be respected on its own terms, even in the marital bedroom. The body is not just a shell or a suit, and it's not incidental to who we are. It's part and parcel of who we are. So John Paul says this, and this is a direct quote. If the human being, man and woman, in marriage, gives to their behavior a meaning that is in conformity with the fundamental truth of the language of the body, then they are living in the truth. In the opposite case, they lie and commit falsehoods with their body. You might see now where all this is going. In their interactions, couples must not, must not use their bodies or communicate with their bodies in ways that are contrary to the truth, which is for marriage, and if you read the theology of the body, you'll get more of this. For him, the fundamental truth of marriage are the words that are spoken on the day of the wedding, the words of the exchange of consent, which is words of complete and radical self-gift until death. Those words mean something when we vocalize them, and the body has to communicate that for the rest of the marriage. Right? And thus, and this is where we get to this point, 
When couples, for example, use contraception, they speak a lie with their bodies. That's what the whole point of the theology of the body is. It's a, it's a defense and a commentary on humane vitae, right? To show why Paul VI, St. Paul VI was right. Contraception is a lie because they withhold a very essential aspect of their bodies from each other, which is their fertility. They are not, in fact, giving their filter. Even if they both agree to do this, the body is still lying. Right? And so St. Paul VI, famous line in Humanae Vitae, that the unitive and procreative dimensions of the conjugal act are absolutely inseparable, is true for St. John Paul II, precisely because the unitive is communicated through the body, and the procreative is the fruit of the unitive. You can't have one with the other, without the other. You can't say to your spouse, I love you, and at the same time smack, smack your spouse or hit your spouse, or at the same time withhold something of your, from yourself, from your spouse. Attempting to communicate the union without the procreation is not, in fact, union. It's a lie that does not respect the objective reality of the body and the structure of the human person. Now... My contention is that St. Thomas Aquinas had a lot of this stuff already figured out way back in the 13th century. Now, it's true, in the 13th century, I'm a Dominican, so of course I think he figured it out, right? <laughs> um, but in this case, I'm actually, it's actually true. <laughs> in the 13th century, people did not speak about matters of marriage the way they did in the 20th, 20th century or the way they do today. And it's true that when you read St. Thomas, you're not going to find any treatise on sexuality or even necessarily a treatise on the human person. He doesn't have one, right? And Wojtyla knew that. When he was teaching in the University of Lublin in the late 1950s, he taught the way Dominicans taught, the way every seminary professor taught, which is he opened St. Thomas's Summa, he read it, and then he explained to you what St. Thomas was doing. That's how most theology classes went in the 1950s, okay? It wasn't until the birth control debate in the 1960s and the 1970s that he began to see that presenting the same natural law arguments from Thomas just wasn't working and wasn't connecting to people. The the but the theology of the body presumes many of the conclusions that Aquinas had already reached, even if John Paul doesn't talk about them. In fact, a number of times in the theology of the body, he explicitly says that it's just not his intention to go into the metaphysics of all of this. That's not why he's doing it. He's focusing on the subjective side of the human person, on the human body, and what scripture has to say about it. So... I want to suggest there are six aspects of Aquinas' teaching, and I'm going to go through these very briefly just to give you a taste, that not only support the theology of the body and this notion of the spousal meaning of the body, but also can provide deeper metaphysical and theological foundations than what John Paul did in these catechesis. These are all very basic Thomistic principles, and any of you who are studying St. Thomas or have studied St. Thomas will recognize all of these very easily. But most of them were largely forgotten, certainly in the 60s and the 70s, and by the time John Paul was articulating the theology of the body. 
And if they weren't forgotten, no one really knew that it was St. Thomas who had kind of come up with this. But make no mistake, Wojtyla knew all of these principles, even if most people weren't talking about them at the time. So, the first principle. St. Thomas has a strong sense of, of that every creature has an appetite for perfection. Right? In his metaphysics, in his philosophy, perfection, and he's borrowing all of this from Aristotle, perfection is synonymous with being, actuality, and goodness. Right? All created beings, whether man, woman, dog, tree, rock, electron, proton, neutron, in a certain sense, um, and this is, I'm speaking colloquially, want, in as much as a rock could want anything, want to be fully perfect and to be fully actualized. Geese want to fly south. Trees want to grow toward the sun. That's their perfection. Right? The whole of creation is yearning for actualization and perfection in the perfect and supreme goodness, which is God. And this actualization always, always for every creature, always requires something else or somebody else, some other agent other than the created being itself. If I want a pan to be hot, I need a fire, something that's already hot, that already has the perfection I'm seeking. This is true, whether that other agent is the supreme good, God himself, or other created agents who are good in some respects, actualized in some respects, and not good or not actualized in others, but can in fact actualize other things in the ways that they are already actualized. I mean, if, it's, if a rock is not, it's not in a rock's nature to be in midair or to be up on a shelf. It's, it really wants to be on the ground. <laughs> right? That's where it wants to be. The human person, who is a composite of body and soul, is actualized, each of us, and therefore perfect, each of us, in some, some respects and imperfect in others. Right? None of us is completely perfect. None of us has actualized our full potential. And we need others. We need other persons and other things. We need teachers to teach us. We need people to love us or to care for us. We need food to feed us, right? Our capacities to act are always actualized in ways uh, that need others to be the actualizers, if you will. I'm not even sure that's an English word. Every person finds fulfillment outside of himself, outside of herself, in study, in work, in relationships. To use the formal Aristotelian Thomistic language, every agent acts for an end for telos, for a good. Now get this, for St. Thomas, one of the ways he speaks about love in its most primal sense is that drive for perfection. The appetite to be perfected by those things that are connatural, fitting to our nature and perfecting of us. So in that sense, there is such a thing as natural love. Rocks have a natural love to be at rest. Geese love to fly south. But what separates these natural loves and animals' loves from human love 
is precisely that men and women can know and can understand and can choose where we will find our perfection, in what activity, in what things, in what people or what person. And we can make choices and we can understand how our choices will bring us to that perfection. Right? That's why in Latin, in Thomas's Latin, he uses a different word for love, for the kind of love that humans have. He uses the word delexio, which means it's a love of choice. We choose our love. St. Thomas would agree with St. John Paul II that all creation is called out of nothingness, but that man has a unique role in all of this precisely because of his understanding and his power to choose, and that's what makes him in the image of God. The second relative, relevant characteristic for all of this is Aquinas' thought, and Aquinas' thought is a strict hylomorphism. The theory that the body and soul are so united, so intertwined, that they are in a sense, and these are horrible words to be using, codependent on each other. For St. Thomas, the human person is not just a body and is not even just a soul. The human person is a body soul, a body soul composite. It's completely wrong to think that John Paul was the first to emphasize this. He wasn't. Aquinas had already realized even calling them components is a problem, but mentally we have to separate them. But for St. Thomas, they're inextricably linked to each other. The body is the material in us. The rational soul is the formal in us. It's what makes us human. It's what makes our body a human body. The body which we share with the animals, the soul, the intellect, is what makes us distinctively human, our higher side. The body is made for the soul, but that doesn't mean that the body is a mere instrument of the soul. Because even, the soul, even though the soul can live without the body, the human soul was made such that it is a substance that needs the body. We do not become angels when we die. I hate that when people say that. All right? You don't become little cherubs, okay? And Aquinas is so insistent about this fact, the body and soul needing each other and being one thing. And he's consistent throughout his life and work. He's so insistent that he holds that when you die and your body separate, your soul separates from the body, until the general resurrection of the dead, when the, all bodies will rise and be reunited with the souls, that your soul is not completely itself. Now, if you make it to the beatific vision, that's more than makes up for, you know, not having the body. But it's still not itself because it doesn't have its body. Right? He holds that there's an immaterial element to human thought that cannot be explained by bodily organs. The thought, like universal thought, we know this. Aristotelians in the room know this, right? Universal thought, ideas of truth and goodness and love and freedom. But if he were alive today, he would be thrilled, I think, to point to all the developments of neuroscience, to point to the fact that we can put people in a, in a scanner and tell them to think about something and see parts of the brain light up. He would say, of course, because the intellect needs the body, needs the senses, needs the brain to come up with the images, to chomp on, to think of things like freedom and love and truth. Right? The immaterial component is, part of, is, part, is our knowledge, but it needs the material component. 
It is, per, it is absolutely impossible, if I can just digress this one moment, um, it is absolutely impossible for the human brain to be blank unless you're like in some sort of coma, right? I hate that. When you go to like, sometimes you go to retreats, it's like, you need to please clear your mind. That's impossible. When people tell you to clear your mind, what do you do? You imagine a brick wall, a blank wall. Am I the only one that does this? No. Well, guess what? You're, that's an image in your head. You haven't cleared your mind, all right? The human intellect uses images to chomp on to come up with abstract and universal ideas. That's why we need the body. This is exactly what distinguishes our personhood from the personhood of God and the personhood of angels. We are embodied persons. We are corporeal persons. So we share the reality of being bodily with animals but we share the reality of immaterial thought being an immaterial intellectual substance in our soul with God and the angels. Our souls are made for our bodies and our bodies are made for the soul. Third, as I said earlier, human love is distinguished from those natural drives to perfection, natural loves. But we are composite creatures and so we have that animal side to us. Authentic and distinctively human love for St. Thomas requires, absolutely requires, that we have our passions, our emotions in order, which is to say that our animal side, our bodily side, must be subordinated to what is distinctively human, reason and the intellect and true love. Aquinas, along with John Paul and the classical Christian tradition, insist that this is the most inherently difficult task we have as human beings after original sin, getting all of this in order. Right? Coming to some sense of harmony between our intellect, our reason, our mind, our will, and our body and our emotions. Think of St. Paul's famous phrase, I do not do the good that I want to do, I end up doing the very evil that I hate doing. By, dish, by definition, remember, love for Aquinas is that drive to perfection, that drive out of oneself to the good. Married men and women must find some perfection in each other. That's why you ask an engaged couple, why do you want to get married? And they usually have, now I'm a celibate priest, so you know, I know these are romantic ways people talk, but you know, they usually say, well, because you know, we, we find our perfection in each other. We complete each other, this is Jerry Maguire, right? We complete <laughs> each other, right? Yeah, that's all very syrupy and beautiful. But it's, and it's true. It is true. Uh, because we love each other. We complete each other. But for this love to be truly human, it must be characterized by what is specifically human, which is the ability to think and to reason. Love must be a choice guided by reason and by truth. And I think that's very counterintuitive in the world today. Don't overthink love, they say. Well, I also encourage you not to overthink it. I do want you to think about it. Right? How many people do you know who are in relationships that seem completely wrong to them? Because they're not thinking about it. It's all passion and emotion. St. Thomas, I want to be clear, does not want to snuff out passion and love. On the contrary, it's only when our passions and our emotions are directed to reason, directed to the highest parts of ourselves, that they actually become a catalyst to doing good and being good. It's then that our passions are truly human. St. Thomas is not a Stoic. 
In fact, he very much disliked the Stoics. For St. Thomas, the person who has virtue is not a person who doesn't feel. The person who has virtue is a person who actually is free to feel deeply, more deeply than the rest of us. Because, and I'm presuming, I mean, I'm, we're all trying to pursue virtue. I'm presuming not everyone in this room has achieved perfect virtue yet. <laughs> if you have, good on you. Um, but the virtuous person is not afraid of his or her emotions, is not afraid that she's going to be carried off by him or he's going to do something he regrets because of him. The virtuous person can use anger rightly to make him courageous in the face of difficulty without you know, becoming a monster. The virtuous person loves deeply and feels everything deeply. Think about that when you think about Jesus Christ and the Blessed Mother, who we have to believe were perfect in virtue. They were very passionate and felt everything very deeply. Right? When, per when a person's love is not covered by virtue, uh, it's not human love. It's more like animal's love. Aquinas taught that when a person's love is motivated by concupiscence, we degrade the lover's dignity because we're loving only the bodily side rather than the higher side, the distinctively human. The person who habitually makes choices that, are guided by, that is guided by reason is what separates that person from the animals because his choices, choices are not based on mere craving or instinct. Fourth, and this, one's a has, this one is a little more um, uh, uh, contentious with some quarters, but I, I will go to the wall for this one. So even though St. Thomas's strict hylomorphism and his indebtedness to Aristotelian biology forced him to assert the physical and intellectual and virtuous superiority, I mean all around, superiority of men to women, I want to. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to explain this. So give you. Don't. Don't run me out yet. I'm going to explain this. <laughs> this is all very much in a qualified sense. He also, nonetheless, <clears throat> advocated equality between the sexes in his milieu, and even Catholic feminist theologians like Lisa Sokail at Boston College, who would not agree with him on anything else, agrees with me on this point. <laughs> that he actually did advocate for the equality of, of husband and wife of men and women in the 13th century, okay, in his milieu, whatever that would mean in his milieu. First to say about Aristotle, um, obviously Aristotle doesn't know about DNA and how all this, the reason Aristotle, you all know why Aristotle says women are, in, he says they're defective males because he understands in the sex ethic the male is the active principle and the female is the passive principle. She's providing the material, he's providing the form. So if something other than a male comes out, it means something is defective because the form should reproduce itself perfectly. That's the whole point, all right? Obviously, they did not know anything about how this worked, <laughs> right? So, and St. Thomas, when he talks about it, you can tell when you read him on this stuff, he's a, you can tell he's like a little, I think he's a little embarrassed by it, because he's all, but then he goes immediately, because he's not just a philosopher, he's a man of faith. And he says, women cannot be defective males because God created them in Eden. You know, I mean, Eve was not a mistake. 
right? She was not a defect. So you could see he's wrestling with that. Aristotle says they're defective, but the Bible says they're not, right? Okay. His settled position on marriage, and he only starts writing, writes, he writes this in one of his last works, the Summa Contra Gentiles, is that marriage, and he's commenting on the Nicomachean ethics in this point too, but he doesn't even write this in his commentary on the Nicomachean ethics. He says that marriage is the highest form of friendship between men and women. And the Latin here is amicitia maxima, the maximum amicitia, the maximum friendship. In spite of their sexual differences, and even though he argued that the husband, following St. Paul, was the head of the family, there is for St. Thomas a certain equality between husband and wife because equality is necessary for friendship. There is no friendship where there is no equality. A sort of domestic justice, if you will. Friendship only exists between equals. It entails a common endeavor. It's an attempt to make each other better. True friendship for Aquinas following Aristotle wants the good not only for oneself but for one's friend, so much so that seeing my friend flourish makes me flourish. Right? Seeing my friend happier makes me happier. There is no, there is no envy, there is no pride in, friend, in true friendship. And any friendship that is based only on utility, which unfortunately in the history of the world, some marriages have been, ceases to be friendship when the utility ceases, when it's no longer useful. So concerned was Aquinas about the equality between husband and wife that Aquinas provided detailed arguments in the 13th century why monogamy and indissolubility are necessary for marriage in order, in fact, to pres preserve the equality. Because he thought that in any situation in which there were multiple spouses or even marrying a servant or a slave would leave one of the spouses in an unequal footing with the other. Usually the woman would be unequal to the man. He was categorically against any such arrangement where men would be subject, where women would be subservient or unequal to, to their husbands. Fifth, I don't know if you all have this word in Spanish. Do you all have the word marital debt? Does anyone even know what this is anymore? What do you call it in Spanish? The debito de conyugale? Okay. I'm, I'm close on that. Am I close? My Spanish is horrible. Fifth in St. Thomas's view, and this is actually the traditional teaching of the church, and it's still the teaching, even though it's not spoken. In St. Thomas's view, the husband and wife give to each other a certain authority over their bodies in the exchange of mutual consent at the wedding. This gift, which the church has traditionally called the marital debt, is what each spouse gives to the other of themselves. This means, in traditional terms, I'm going to qualify this in a minute, that each spouse is always free to request the conjugal act from the other. You belong to me and I belong to you. Now, although this language may seem dated, it does show us that St. Thomas had some understanding that the husband and wife were equally indebted to each other, body and soul. Even if he doesn't use language like self-gift, which is a much more contemporary way of speaking, 
But it also shows that he wanted to protect the couple from lust, which is possible within marriage, and the possibility of objectifying each other sexually, which is also possible in marriage. It is possible to lust after one's spouse. In fact, and I go through, I have a book on this, If you, I did a whole book on this, but there, we talk, I talk about this in one of the chapters. St. Thomas provides, in fact, several parameters for how to ask for the debt to be repaid from your spouse to prevent the fact that you might become lustful for your spouse. Although I have to tell you, he, he ever only mentions the possibility of a husband lusting after his wife, never the, never the other way around. He never gets too detailed. He leaves a lot to prudence and for the couple to discern the relationship. But the whole point, to use somewhat contemporary language, is to protect their bodies from being used by the other and being objectified by the other so that, in fact, they can be true gifts to each other. Finally, toward the end of his life, St. Thomas wrote that the formal element of marriage is the inseparable union of souls between husband and wife. And there's some recent scholarship has now begun to focus on this fact, this idea in Aquinas and how it might relate to contemporary debates about person and the unitive dimension of marriage. Just as the human person is a composite of body and soul, so marriage, we might argue, is also a composite of the formal, the union of souls, and the material, the union of the bodies. And this cannot be separated. These cannot be separated from the end of marriage, which is the begetting and upbringing of children, which is benefited not simply by the material aspect, but also by the formal aspect, the union of souls, the bond of a husband and wife, that provides the foundation for care for children, which St. Thomas spends a lot of time on. That's, that's one of the biggest reasons for him for monogamy is that it creates a bond of a husband and wife who are then devoted to raising their, their offspring and making them successful, virtuous saints, essentially. You know. So, mar so yeah, insisting that marriage is formally the union of souls makes marriage a distinctively human endeavor different than even monogamous animals. This insistence upon the union of souls elevates the procreative aspect of marriage beyond merely biological to distinctively human. It must be united to what is human, that the biological unites with the spiritual. The procreative unites to the unitive. We're not brute animals. Marriage entails much more than breeding children because human beings are capable of a uniquely chosen rational love that unites spouses spiritually. We don't breed children, we raise children. Right. Now to, to conclude, what does all this mean for the theology of the body? Obviously, I'm a big fan of St. John Paul II and the theology of the body. Um, I think it was a mistake for early interpreters to interpret it as something radically new, and there's been some real deviant interpretations because of that. It's also a mistake to think that John Paul II intended to do everything possible in the theology of the body. For instance, uh, five years every Wednesday, he never mentions children. It's the theology of the whole thing's about marriage. Children never mentioned, not once. I mean, obviously, we, they talks about the conjugal act, but not actually what children do for the theology of the body or for the marriage, right? 
I suggest going forward that people, um, I think most people haven't read these catechesis. I suspect, and I think they read commentaries, but I suspect you read them. Read St. John Paul II's first book on marriage and sexuality, Love and Responsibility. Second, I know that John Paul would have welcomed introducing St. Thomas into this discussion. I mean, look at his pontifical writings, Veritatis Splendor and Fides et Ratio. But more importantly, going back to his dabble with personalism and phenomenology, in his last book published in English just a few weeks after he died, Memory and Identity, this is what he insisted, quote, If we wish to speak rationally about good and evil, we have to return to St. Thomas Aquinas. That is, we have to return to a philosophy of being. With the phenomenological method, for example, we can study experiences of morality, religion, or simply what it is to be human, and draw from them a significant enrichment of our knowledge, yet we must not forget that all of these analyses presuppose the reality of being and also the reality of what it means to be human, of being a creature. If we do not set out from these realistic, realist metaphysical presuppositions, we will end up in a vacuum. Aquinas' thought, I think, provides all the presuppositions that just gives fullness to John Paul's theology of the body. Thank you for listening to me talk for like an hour. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.